Welcome to the Strategy with Jason podcast. Tune in for everything you need to know to stay in the know regarding the automotive industry. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Hey, 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 what's going on, Podcast Nation? It's Jason Harris here, and thank you for joining me another episode of Strategy with Jason. Today, it's a very special episode. We're in downtown Philadelphia with the one, the only, the oh-so-famous Mr. Mr. Seth Ferrati with me. Seth, what's up, man? How you doing? What's up, bro? <laughs> man, I'm glad we were able to connect and do this, because I think your story is just got so much value out there and people can really learn from it so that's i think where we'll kick it off right i love kicking off these podcasts with origin stories you know and you just got such a killer origin story so so what is you know that 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 beginning of your story yeah i would say um you know i, I was a grew up a military brat you know I, we kind of grew up um middle class you know mostly west coast but you know a little bit on the east coast um, my, my, my biological father was in the Marines and then um, my stepdad, he was in the uh, Navy. So I kind of had that, that really that military brat life, you know, moved a lot every two or three years, you know, and, and I, I see I was kind of I was always a new kid, you know, so I think always being kind of the new kid, you know, not really having that firm foundation. I was always like searching for something, you know, I was always like I felt like something was missing and you know, by the age of 13, um, you know, I, I started experimenting with drugs and I, I discovered cannabis and, and I kind of, I kind of fell in love. And, um, this is, this is like a, a, a love story that lasts to this day. You know, I'm 51 years old now and, you know, it's had all the, uh, ups and downs, you know, that you would have in, uh, any type of, of relationship, you know, and from getting involved in, in cannabis, you know, it kind of, I don't know, gave me that sense, you know, fill the vacuum, you know, whatever it is. But, um, you know, I quickly went from using cannabis at an early age to selling it. So, you know, by, by 15, you know, I, I was selling cannabis because I, I, I quickly found out that, you know, um, if I got drugs for like you and, and him and her and all my other friends, I could get free drugs, you know, and I figured that out really quick. And then right after that, I figured out, you know, if I bought more of this, then I could actually make money on this and get free drugs. So, you know, I, I was kind of like a, a, you know, entrepreneurial business minded kid. And um, I just fell into it, too. And, you know, I also because I came up in the 80s, you know, so it was like, you know, just say no, you know, the D.A.R.E. program, you know, war on drugs, you know, they were trying to equate, you know, cannabis to like heroin and stuff like that and even even from the age of like 14 15 like I never thought that I, I never agreed with that you know I tell people to this day that even though I did a, um, over two decades in prison in federal prison for a first-time nonviolent offense for cannabis and LSD I tell people I don't consider myself a criminal I never considered myself a criminal I broke laws that I thought were wrong I'm an outlaw you know, so there's a difference. There's a distinction. You know, I, I didn't carry a gun. I wasn't a mafioso. You know what I'm saying? I didn't beat people up. You know, I, I was just like, uh, you know, I fell in sort of following the Grateful Dead. So I, I was just kind of like, you know, this this uh, hippie outlaw kid. Yeah, you were just in that subculture. Yeah, from, from you know, back in the 80s, we used to call it the counterculture. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, so I kind of I kind of dove into this culture, man. And, and what, it, what it gave to me... Um, and especially like like the selling drugs, it kind of uh, it kind of gave me the feeling of like being in demand. It gave me the feeling, you know, of being ro a rock star. You know, it gave me that feeling of acceptance because you know, 
I mean, in, in high school and then when you go into college, you know, the, the guy with the weed and the psychedelics is, is usually in pretty high demand. So, and, and like I say, I can, as a 50 year old man, I can look back and I can see how that kind of all stems, you know, from being the new guy every two or three years. You know, I wanted people to know who I was. You know, I wanted that acceptance. I wanted that recognition. And even to this day, you know, like, like I, I still get that, like with, you know, my writing and my, mm -hmm. my film work, you know, I, I still crave that. So whatever that's in me. So, um, yeah, this quickly escalated, you know, from just, you know, selling, uh, you know, weed and, and, and LSD, you know, to my friends and my, my little circle to where when everybody kind of went out to college, you know, I, I started supplying them and all their <laughs> friends at colleges. So, you know, by the time I was basically 17, 18 years old, I was supplying 15 colleges in five states on the Holy East Coast with cow. weed and LSD. And so cells is just kind of in your blood. Like it's just a, it's just a part of you. you. You gravitated it at a very very early age, and you know I think when I think of cells, I think of the art of telling stories. And you're also amazing at telling stories as well. As well, you were the producer on White Boy Rick. Was an amazing documentary. Uh, I watched it on Netflix when it first came out. I thought it was so cool. So so tell tell me a little bit about you know how did you find this talent for telling stories? Yeah, I think. I think for me, I, w I was always creative. You know, I was, um, you know, I used to play guitar. I used to, I used to write songs. Uh, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. I would be like the guy that was the dungeon master. So I was always kind of creating, you know, this stuff with, with, with whatever I was doing. And, um, you know, even, even going back to like the sales stuff, like, like I believe, you know, like, yeah, I, I sold weed and I sold LSD, but for me, you know, I, it wasn't, you know, like a job or it wasn't like I was even mm -hmm. doing something illegal. It was just, it was something that I believed in. It was something that I, I felt people should have access to that they were denied access to, you know, because of the, of the laws of the country. So it, it was just something like, like a necessity to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, I really, I really believed in it. But, um, you know, and, and even like that, even when you go in, like, I, I mean, I would create stories like around everything I was doing, like, you know, I was on the East Coast, I was in Virginia, mm -hmm. I was getting cannabis sent from the West Coast, from, from Humboldt County, you know, in the Emerald Triangle, which is like the famed, magical, mystical kind of Napa, <laughs> Napa Valley of cannabis. And, you know, I was getting it sent through my homeboys in San Francisco. So even like when I would bring this, this, this cannabis over to the East Coast and take it up to the colleges, you know, I would spin like these tales and, you know, not tales, but, you know, it's, 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 it's the truth, but I would say like, you know, like I would tell them where the cannabis is like, man, this is from Southern Humboldt, exactly. you know, this is like up in the mountains, you know, this is like organic, sun-grown, you know, high terpene profile, yeah. you know, and, and I was really into it. So it, it enabled me to kind of express it to other people. And you know, I, I believe like if you're into something, if you believe in mm -hmm. what you're doing, then it, I mean, it's an easy selling. And at the end of the day, to me, it wasn't even like, like I've never thought, like I was a drug dealer, so a lot of people say, okay, yeah, you were in sales. I never thought of it like was I was in sales, because to me- You just enjoy I was, telling the story. I was helping yeah. people. You know, I was helping people get to something they want, and then I, I, was, I was entertaining them, and then I was like re regaling them with like the history, you know, and the dynamics of like, you know, where this product come, came from, mm -hmm. and you know, and why they should like this product over like some Mexican brick pot, which like in the 80s, it was a lot of Mexican brick pot, you know, that was pretty much garbage. So uh, for me, that, that was the whole thing. You know, it was something 
something I'm into. I'm invested in the story. I'm invested in the history. I'm invested but in the culture. But energy comes out, right? Like, it, look, I think there's a lot of people out there that can tell a story, a regurgitate a story, all right? But it's your energy and your conviction behind it yeah. that people really kind of buy into. You got to, you got to show, you got to show that passion. And, and I think with anything, I mean, the the, the passion starts. It starts with helping people, man. Mm -hmm. It starts with it starts with doing the right thing. You know, it starts with you know believing in what you're saying, and and it starts with you know, ha having a passion about what you're saying. Now, tell me a little bit about how the opportunity to tell, you know, White Boy Rick's story came about, right? Because what a hell of a story he's got. I mean, you do as well, but like, how did that opportunity come about for you? Well, I was, I was, I was in federal prison. Um, I was in, you know, towards the end of the 90s, I was in this um, medium high um, federal prison called uh, FCI Beckley in West Virginia, mm -hmm. and in FCI Beckley, you know, it's East Coast, but it was like West Virginia, so it was it was a little bit over, not right on the coast. And there was a lot of guys from Detroit there, and I was already writing. I I'd already started writing like my um, Street Legend series, you know, like on a a, mm -hmm. a bunch of the urban gangsters that have kind of become a, a part of hip hop's lyrical lore. You know that they were name dropping in the verses, like in gangster rap in the mid '90s. So I started writing books about these guys. I was locked up with a lot of these guys, and I kept hearing, you know, from all these Detroit guys. I kept hearing all these legends, you know, about White Boy Rick. You know, this this young white kid who allegedly was running the Black Underworld, and I just thought, like, this is crazy, man. So I started reaching out to this guy. You know, he was in prison. I was in prison. So like. You know, through my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, I started reaching out to him and she would write to him. You know, I would write the letter. She would like rewrite it, send it to him, you know, so we would uh, kind of circumvent the, uh, you know, the, the, the prison the security yeah. measures or whatever, because we're not supposed to write each other. And, you know, I would send him my writings. I would send him some of my books and I'd be like, look, dude, I'm, I want to do your story, man. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed, man. You got this awesome story. And so he started writing me back. And, and he was telling me like a completely different story. You know, he was telling me like, you know, basically the cops made me an informant when I was 14, you know, they railroaded me into this, wow. you know, um, you know, they made me a drug dealer. And, you know, at the time I'm, I'm in prison and, you know, when somebody says the word informant when you're in prison, you're like, you like shy away yeah. from that. That's like a bad word <laughs> yeah. in prison, yeah. you know, like snitch, informant, all that type of stuff. You know, so at first I, I couldn't really wrap his story. I was like, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to romanticize this story. I'm trying to glorify it. I'm trying to do like the Billy the Kid, Jesse James type thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's the, the gunslinger. Yeah. That's the stories that I was writing at this time. And so at first, you know, I, I couldn't really wrap my head around that, but I was still, you know, um, into the story. So I kind of, we kept, we kept corresponding. We kind of built up a friendship. And it wasn't till like, you know, about really almost five, six seven eight years later as i matured and as i started seeing different things and as my writing started evolving that i could actually you know wrap my head around his story and like like really what happened you know because you know eventually i came to look at it like you know whatever yeah dude was an informant but he was basically pimped out by the government when he was 14 years old which is which is crazy That's on insane. the face when you think yeah. about it you know, so I, and also my, my writing, as my writing evolved, I started writing more about like, you know, racial injustice. Mm -hmm. You know, I started looking at like the war on drugs for what it is. Yeah, because I'm, I'm a white guy, but I was in prison with mostly black dudes. So it was mostly black dudes that were locked up.
you know, for this, this war on drugs. So there was this really big racial component. And also I started looking at the criminal justice system and what they were doing to people. And I, I started writing about prison reform stuff, you know, and how they were treating us and how they had us caged and how they basically stripped away everything of us and we didn't have any rights and we were treated like worse than animals. And so, you know, I really started looking at this stuff as I matured and as my writing evolved. And then I, I figured out a way how I could tell his story. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I did I did a couple pieces from prison. I did, I did a piece for this one uh, drug war website called The Fix in 2012. And the story actually went viral, you know, got a, a ton of attention. And then I did some other stories for Vice and for Vice News. And, um, you know, and basically my whole thing, I was trying to get Rick out because Rick got busted with eight and a half kilos yeah. when he was 17 as, and as a nonviolent offender and he got a life sentence. And, you know, around 2012, too, the Supreme Court came out and said, you can't give a juvenile life. You know, and this and dude, like, yeah, and they yeah, got him in the Michigan system and they won't even, he had like, in something like his first, like, uh, 21 years or something he had only had like one parole hearing it was like it was like crazy like they were just railroading this dude it was basically like a, a revenge thing mm -hmm. you know because because he knew a whole bunch about the cops and he told the feds when he got busted he told the feds about the corrupt cops in detroit that led all the way up to the mayor so you know and that really didn't go nowhere a lot, some people got convicted but a lot of people you know got acquitted you know because that's what happens when they indict law enforcement it doesn't always work out even when it's the feds and um yeah so he was like the revenge factor they were trying to bury him in prisons that's crazy now when you're when you're telling a story like this um how much of the story is coming from like rick's voice versus seth's voice like what how do you how do you go about that process do you do you, do you kind of absorb it and then it comes out through you or do you really try to come at, at it from like rick's voice why well, do it i mean i we in the documentary so we use i mean we had rick calling we recorded yeah. him so we used a lot of rick's voice but you know, at the at the same time, like like in the writing, it's 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 a combination because you know I use his quotes, but also I'm in the same situation as him. So exactly. you know, I'm in a real unique position as a, as a writer, as a journalist, as a storyteller, because I'm going through the exact same thing. You know, I mean, I would say he's a victim of the war on drugs, and I was a victim. I got 25 years when I was 22 for a first time nonviolent offense. So you know, in the same regard, I was a victim of the war on drugs. So. I really understood, you know, I understood the whole thing. I understood, you know, from being, once I'd been in the criminal justice system for like 10 years, I really understood how it worked. I really looked at it. I saw everything that they were doing and, and I thought it was wrong. So when I eventually got out in 2015, I, I had two goals. You know, I'd already wrote a bunch of books in prison. You know, I'd become a, a national journalist from prison, but I had two goals when I got out. Uh -huh. First, I wanted to become a filmmaker. That was that was that was my goal. Like that set, was that's my what dream. I'm gonna do. Yeah, because <laughs> to me, that was the next evolution of, as a writer. You know, you write articles, to, you to write put books, a, to put the visual behind the yeah, story. Yeah, and then yep. and then you jump. You know, that's that's like evolve. That's like the evolvement of, of a writer. That's mm -hmm. where you get to. You know, so I wanted to become a writer director. Second. I want to get Rick off, you know, because by the time I got out, we've been writing back and forth 10 years. You know, I invested a lot of time in his story. You know, I had, uh, you know, got tons of stuff published about him saying that, you know, they needed to let him out of prison. You know, that he had this awful draconian sentence, you know, that he should have been out already. And, um, you know, so I had, I kind of had these two goals, you know, in my mind. And I, I didn't know that I, were, I was going to be able to combine them into one thing, but you know, around two, 2015, like I wasn't even out, you know, maybe 12 months. And I met Sean Reck from Transition Studios. I interviewed him for his first film 
which was called Murder in the Park, which was on Showtime. And I interviewed him for Vice. And when I talked to him, you know, he was a true crime dude. He had kind of cut his teeth. He had done 200 Crime Stopper, um, <laughs> 200 Crime Stopper shows on all the networks. Yep. And when, you know, he, he flew me up there, you know, he was interested, you know, and we were actually talking about other film ideas because he was looking for his next film project. So, you know, he wanted to see like what kind of, what I kind of had and, you know, I wanted to make a film. And I walked into his office in Cleveland and uh, this guy had like nine Emmys. You know, that was like wow. the first thing I noticed. Mm -hmm. it, it was all regional enemies in Ohio, but it's still nine Emmys. You know, so I was like, man, this dude, like, as a director and a producer, like, he really knows what he was doing. So I was like, you know what? I was pitching him stuff, and, and we, we were kind of going back and forth. And at the same time, they were they were talking about the White Boy Rick movie, mm -hmm. the Hollywood movie, and Matthew McConaughey. He had just got signed. So that was kind of like in the news, you know, and... Uh, so I, I kind of I kind of brought up you know like my my association with White Boy Rick and the, and the work I'd done and he had heard about the Hollywood movie so he was a, a, a you know instantly he was kind of piqued he was like yeah man we can do a documentary on this so you know we did like a deal and um, I made sure too like like my deal with him I said look dude I said I'm not looking for any money up front mm -hmm. I'm not looking for like any short term gratification you know I want you to train me. You know to make films i want you to train me you know to be a director you know you you've won all these emmys so you that, know that's give, a, that's give me talent. your knowledge that's talent yeah. itself the willingness to actually be humble enough to say look i just i just need to learn right yeah, you know, so, i think there's a lot of people that are still trying to find their own voices and you know i'm curious what kind of advice would you have for people out there that are trying to find their voice so they can they can articulate these stories where people can connect with them I mean, for, first, first you got you got to care about people, man. Too many people today, like they, they don't yeah. care what you say. They they just want to talk. You know, they don't listen. So first, you need to learn to listen. You need to learn to listen to what people say. You yeah. know, because it's amazing to me how how people don't listen today, right? So first, you need to learn to listen. Practice on your listening skills. Then you need to care, man. You need to care about somebody other than yourself. You need you need to care about other people. You need to give them the time. You need to be sincere, you know. And then, you know, basically. You, you got to be passionate, be passionate about what you do. You got to find something, you know, what you want to do. Maybe what you want to do isn't in sales, you know, maybe you want to run a landscaping business. You want to do this, you want to do that, but just basically you need to care about what you do. You need to listen to what people say, and you just need to have like some sincerity and some compassion. And I, you know, if you do that, whatever you do in life, you know, you, you're gonna you're gonna be successful because people are gonna respond to that. Exactly. You know, because if people Cause think you care them. about them, yeah, they want to yeah, if connection. you connect to them, they think you care about them. Then you know they're you know because a lot of businesses is, is built on relationships, so it's important to form these relationships. Because if you have these relationships, and then you know if you're in car sales or if you're you know sell houses, whatever you do, if you already have a relationship with somebody, if you built that mm -hmm. relationship, and then they need something in those fields, they're gonna come to you first. Exactly. Yeah, so really everything, I think but it, everything but it starts sales, all with that story. That's where it all yeah. kind of starts, right? Is that Sales starts with the relationship. Yes. It, it starts with the story. It starts with the caring. So, uh, and like I say, it's not something you have to practice. It's not something you have to, like, get set in your mind. It just ha it, it has to be real. You know, it has to exactly. come from the heart. That's right. It has to be authentic, right? Because people really. can smell it. You can really smell when someone's just faking it. You know, yeah. and I think people that are really good in any type of sales, that's what they do. They take their real life stories, their real life situations, their real life experiences, and then they relate them to the customer in, in a mm -hmm. way they can understand. 
You know what I'm saying? Because because that's what it's about. With people, you're always looking like, where is that common ground? Where is that connection? Where is that connection? Where is that relationship? So when you can share stories about yourself, and then you know a person might have been through something similar, then you've got that connection, and that's going to lead to the sale. 100%. Seth, we've covered, I know we're getting towards the tail of our time, we covered some really, really cool topics, and I still think there's probably a lot to, to discuss here. For anybody out there that's watching and listening and would love to kind of connect and follow along with your story, what, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, so I, I got a website called GorillaConvict.com, G-O-R-I-L-L-A-C-O-N-V-I-C-T.com. I also have, um, like I'm on social media, like, Instagram at Seth Ferrante, S-E-T-H-F-E-R-R-A-N-T-I. I'm on Facebook under my name. I'm on Twitter under my name. So um, yeah, that's basically, I got a YouTube channel under my name, you know, Seth Ferrante. So that's how you can find out anything. I got a bunch of projects coming out this year. I'm about to drop four new films this year. You know, White Boy going on Netflix and blowing up has really put a lot of wind in my sails. So um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm cranking stuff out, man. I'm, I'm living the dream right now. You know, I'm, I'm working hard and I'm trying to keep all this going. Dude, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to jam with me today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. No, definitely, bro. Appreciate it.